I would say indeed it has been a a different week, I would say. It's interesting. Um, but we definitely want to keep a lot of the folks here in our prayers because there's a lot going on and a lot of hurt, a lot of suffering. And so we want to definitely keep um, folks in our prayers, especially remembering Marvin, his situation and the the funeral that's coming up this Tuesday. And then for Rick, I was able to go by and visit with both of these men um, this past week. And, you know, I, I tell you, especially when talking with Rick Springer, the just the the fact that the scripture tells us that we need to be ready at a moment's notice to be ready. And that's pretty much what happened to Paula. You know, they went in for the cancer treatments and she had an allergic reaction and she was gone. That's how quick life can be over. Uh, life on earth, that is. I truly believe that when she left this earth, she walked into the arms of Jesus. And so, you know, we just need to, we need to be keeping our folks in prayer because, uh, you know, it's very real, the things that, that go on, you know, and it's, it's, it's really tough to, to deal with sometimes. And it's very, it's very discouraging that, um, you know, that, that Satan uses these things to his advantage. And so we just, you know, we need to, we need to lift the Lord up and know that God still is in control. Amen. And, and that, Ultimately, this life is just a prelude to what's yet to come. Isn't that right? You're not convincing me of that, folks. Am I right or not? Yes. Amen. That's right. It's just a prelude. So let's, let's, we endure it as long as we can, and then we, we walk into the arms of Jesus. This morning, I want to begin, um, again, you know, continuing on in our intersection series here we're on part four and i'm not really sure how many parts this is going to have you know i haven't decided yet you know if i'm going to have 10 parts 12 parts 14 parts i don't know but it's at least going to be 10 parts i think but i want to begin today's message is um, christ meets us at the intersection of doubt and i think that we've all experienced doubt in our lives and so we're going to talk about that but before we get to that um, again i want to begin this morning by reading from Psalm chapter 25, verses 4 and 5. I think this is so important for you to keep in mind. He says there, he says, Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior. For you are God my Savior. And my hope is in you all day long. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you that our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that he is our God, he is our Savior, and that he, he is there for us. He still is in control, Father, and so I pray that we would put our hope and our trust in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Again, King David expresses his desire for guidance, and not just any guidance. He wants God's guidance in his life. And I think that we all need to have that prayer for it is at the, the intersection of life where we, we most need the guidance and the instruction that can only be found through God and through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's at that intersection that we find that guidance. And so this morning we're going to meet Christ at the intersection of doubt. And so I want to put this up on our on our poster board here today. Meeting Christ at the intersection of doubt. I try to keep it in the same hole there. There we go. Is that straight there? Okay, so that's what we want to do. We want to talk about that this morning. And so I want to, I want to begin by sharing about this husband and wife who worked for the circus. And they were so desperate. They wanted, they wanted to adopt a child. And so they went to the adoption agency and the social workers there raised doubts about their suitability in adopting a child. They had, they had some major concerns, major doubts. Then the couple produced photos of their 50-foot motor home, which was clean and well-maintained and, and, and very well-equipped, and it had this beautiful nursery in it. The social workers then raised doubts about the education of the child and what kind of education this child would receive while in the care of the couple. Well, they said, we have arranged for a full-time tutor who will teach the child all the usual subjects along with French Mandarin, and computer skills. Then the social workers expressed their doubts about raising a child in a circus environment. How many of you would be concerned about raising a child in a circus environment? Well, they, they were concerned about this. And, and so the, 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 the husband and wife said, don't worry about that. Our nanny, she is certified um, in pediatric care and welfare and diet. And so she will take good care of this child. The social workers were finally satisfied as their doubts subsided. And one of the social workers asked, what age child are you hoping to adopt? To which the husband and wife said, it really doesn't matter so long as he can fit or she can fit into the canon. (laughs) I read that story so many times this past week and I laughed every single time. That is funny. Don't you think that is funny? You know, <laughs> shooting that child out of the cannon, you know. <laughs> I know that the, a father was talking to his son and he said, remember son, a smart person always has doubts about something. Only a total idiot can be 100% sure about everything. To which the son replied, dad, are you 100% sure about that? And he said, Absolutely. <laughs> you know, folks, we all, we, ha- we all have doubts from time to time. We do. Doubt itself is not a sin, uh, or, or is it wrong? You know, it often can be the catalyst to what I would call extreme spiritual growth. It can, and it would if you, if you allow it. You know, I think that doubt can fall into three categories. The first one is this. There are intellectual doubts. There are doubts most often raised by those outside the Christian faith, such as, you know, is, is the Bible the Word of God? You know, is Jesus the Son of God? You know, did, did Jesus really raise from the dead? You know, second of all, there are spiritual doubts, and these tend to be doubts of those inside the church. You know, am I really a Christian? Maybe you've asked yourself that question. You know, have I truly believed? Why is it so hard to pray? Why do I feel so guilty all the time? Then the third is this. It's called circumstantial doubts. And I think that this is probably the largest category because it encompasses all the whys of life. 
We all have those why questions, don't we? You know, why did my child die? You know, why, why did my marriage break up? You know, why can't I find a husband or a wife? Why did my friends betray me? You know, where is God? When, you know, where, where was God when I was being abused? You know, the, these questions touch the intersection of biblical faith and the pain of a fallen world because we live in a fallen world. Sin came into the world And so we live in a fallen world. And until God makes that right, we will continue to live in a fallen world. But Christ can meet us at the intersection of doubt and he will guide us to where he wants us to be. Amen? He can. He will guide us to where he wants us to be. So there are several things that we need to understand right up front before we get into this subject of doubt. And the first one is this. Many people think doubt is the opposite of faith, but it isn't. It isn't. Unbelief is the opposite of faith, not doubt. Unbelief is. Unbelief refers to a willful refusal to believe, while doubt refers to an inner uncertainty. So so it is not the opposite of faith. Number two, Many people think that doubt is unforgivable, but it isn't. Doubt is not unforgivable. God doesn't condemn us when we question him. Job, David, Thomas, and others questioned God, but God did not condemn them. And he will not condemn you either. God is big enough to handle all of our doubts and all of our questions. Guaranteed. Number three. Many people think struggling with God means we lack faith, but that's not true. It's just not true. Struggling with God is a sure sign that we truly have faith because we're struggling with it. If we never struggle, our faith will never grow stronger. The church has always had its godly individuals whose perspectives differ greatly, especially on the subject of doubt. But must we choose sides? Do we need to choose sides? Isn't it possible for faith and doubt to coexist? Can it coexist? You know, there is at least one person who I would say would say emphatically yes to that. And he is a desperate father who brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus And I want you to turn, if you have, and you can look up on the board here, look at Mark. I'm going to turn to Mark, and I'm going to look at Mark chapter 9. This father was so desperate. And so, you know, just I want you to listen to the conflict of despair, but yet the hope that's in his voice. And I'm going to look at Mark chapter 9, beginning with verse 22. And it's actually 22b there. He says, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus responds this. He says, if you can, that's a question. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Help me, Lord, to overcome my unbelief. You know, I I think that that is a raw of an expression of honest faith and doubt as you're ever going to find anywhere in the scripture. You know, help me to overcome that. 
You know, I, I do believe, but help me to overcome my unbelief. Since the, the demon had come, his son had been mute and frequently had convulsions that left him foaming at the mouth like a, like a dying animal. You know, friends, they, they would all back away. You know, others would, would go around him for fear of this, of this boy. You know, life had become messy and ugly for them. You know, something no one wanted to see or associate with. They didn't want to be around this kid. And it was, it was the, the, it was at this tormented soil that the father's faith, it really struggled to grow. And he wanted it to grow. You know, he didn't learn theology listening to educated rabbis in this quiet little synagogue or something like that. You know, his faith developed in the disturbing lesson of pulling his thrashing son out of fires each time the demon tried to destroy him. Notice what it says there. Go back up in that passage there to verse 17 and read down with me. Follow along. It says, a man in the crowd answered, teacher, I I brought my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him onto the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell into the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. Notice what he says there again. He says, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus says, if you can, if you can, you know, if you can, of course, everything is possible for him who believes. That's what Jesus says. You know, the thrashing and the fire, the, the disturbing lessons occur in all of our lives. You know, the, the, this, is, this isn't just happening here. It's happening all around us all the time. It's these lessons. Disturbing lessons occur in all of our lives. Messy ones that send doubt deep into those sacred beliefs that we once held to that were rock solid and beyond question. And sometimes it just rocks our whole world. It's in those moments of dark turmoil that we, like the Father, cry out, Lord, I believe in you, but help my unbelief. When do doubts emerge? When do they come out? I believe that doubts come to us when we reach the limit of our understanding. When we encounter a sudden unexpected calamity. When we pray for a certain thing and the exact opposite occurs. When we, when a respected mentor suddenly denies the faith and walks away, and I've had that happen. Have you had that happen? Someone that you really respected, that you looked up to, and they just walked away from the faith. And how much doubt does that bring to you? It, when, when we, when we obey and do not, and we do what is right, and then we end up suffering miserably because of it? You know, when we take a course at school that seems more sensible than the faith that we, that we've been raised with? You know, when life takes us through twists and turns that makes absolutely no sense, 
These are the kinds of circumstances that often raise unsettling questions, that bring about doubts. But should we be afraid of those questions? Should we run from those questions? Should we be fearful that we doubt? Absolutely not. We don't need to fear that. We don't need to be running away from that. Ken Geyer, in his book, Issues and Answers in Jesus' Day, says this. He says, he says, questions are the grappling hooks by which the sheer summit of truth can be scaled. I like that. Consequently, those hooks, however sharp, should not be feared. Neither should they be, discour- should they be discouraged. For questions are the very hooks by which a person climbs from doubt to faith. From doubt to faith. You know, people who honestly face the questions, you know, raised by their doubts are what Daniel Taylor, now I want you to hear this. Daniel Taylor calls these people, what he calls them is reflective Christians. He calls them, what is reflective? You know, when you're out there and you're, you're driving along at nighttime and someone's out there running along the road and they're wearing all black and you can't see them and you almost hit them, that's not reflective. Reflective is when they have something on that you can see them from a half a mile away. He's talking about that. Daniel Taylor calls these people reflective Christians. He says in his book, The Myth of Certainty, he writes, the reflective person is first and foremost a question asker, one who finds in every experience and assertion something that requires further investigation. He or she is a stone turner attracted to the creepy crawly things that live under rocks and behind human pronouncements. In other words, the writer of Ecclesiastes was such a person. Solomon was such a person. He says in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 25, he says this, I directed my mind to know, to investigate, to seek wisdom and explanation. That's what he says. How do you think Solomon became so wise? It was because he investigated, he checked it out for himself. He didn't just take Bob Hart's word for it. The question is, are you a stone turner? Not a stone thrower. That's different. A stone turner. You know, Jesus had a disciple who who definitely fit that bill. His name, and I think I would have smacked his parents for this, but his name was Didymus. Who names their child Didymus? Hey, come here, come here, little Didymus. It's like that, that, those parents should have been smacked or something, you know. I don't know. That, that just doesn't seem right here. Come here, little Didymus. Come over here. Sit on, sit on dad's lap, Didymus. You know, so, I don't know. I don't know why the name, but he was more commonly known as Thomas. And we know him as, as what? That's right. We all know it. The Doubting Thomas. That's right. But that really isn't a fair nickname. I would say that he should probably be called Reflective Thomas. Reflective Thomas, not Doubting Thomas. I think that's more appropriate. Why? Well, I want to turn over a few stones in Scripture and find out why. Why did Thomas struggle? Why did Thomas struggle? I think that Thomas was a thinker. I think he had the courage to question, to admit the struggles, 
to raise his hand. You know those students. You know those students that will raise their hands. I don't understand. None of this makes sense to me. You know, he even had the courage to die. Now, if you turn over to John chapter 11, um, he, he had the courage to die. And we're going to see that in a little bit here. You know, because it's two days after hearing of Lazarus' illness that Jesus announces to his disciples in verse 7 there of John chapter 11, he says, let's go to Judea. Let's go to Judea. You know, the 12 knew this trip would be dangerous and immediately they tried to dissuade Jesus from going. Notice what it says there in verse 8. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you and yet you were going back there? You know, so basically, roughly translated, the disciples were saying, Lord, are you crazy? We, we don't want to go back there. That's asking to be killed. At that moment, the disciples might well have refused to follow Jesus. You know, they were all feeling that to go to Jerusalem was going to their deaths. And so I think they were wanting to hang back. But then Thomas, you would have, you would have expected Peter because Peter was kind of the one to, you know, put his foot in his mouth and, you know, but Thomas, Thomas offered an earnest proposal that revealed an important aspect about his character. Notice what it says there in verse 16 of chapter 11. It says, then Thomas called Didymus said to the rest of the disciples, let us go that we may die with him. Let us go that we may die with our Lord and Savior. You know, Thomas wasn't afraid. Thomas said that. You mean, you mean to tell me the same Thomas whose nickname causes everybody to smile or have that grin on their face? Yes, this is the same guy. The truth is, I believe he was a man of great courage. Remember, this wasn't an idle boast for someone who, you know, because they didn't know that, that, that Jesus was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So he really thought, he earnestly believed that in returning to Judea, he was going to die. But he was willing to die with Jesus. He was determined to stand by Jesus no matter what the cost. Another glimpse of Thomas struggles here with his faith and doubt is revealed in the Last Supper. If you remember in John chapter 13 and 14, that passage, you know, the disciples' stomachs were, were churning through practically the whole meal because they were upset by the words that Jesus shared with them. Jesus shared a lot of things with them at that meal. Like, one of you is going to betray me. And I'm sure they were all looking around. Okay, which one of us is it? <laughs> you know, which one's going to betray? And, and he also said, where I go, you cannot follow me right now. You know, then too, Christ comments about, you know, everyone knowing the way to his father's house didn't settle, settle well with them either. So I want you to notice in, in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, what he says there. It says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me where you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And I can just see Thomas. 
just, he wanted to ask that question. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how, how do we know the way? Only Thomas had the courage to ask the question. Only Thomas did. He could have sat there quietly with the rest of the disciples, but it would have gone totally against his nature to pretend to understand when he didn't understand. And so he had to ask the question. He had to ask the question. And you know what? We should be extremely happy and glad that he asked that question because it prompted Jesus to give one of the clearest directions to the Father's house in all of Scripture. Do you remember what Jesus said? He basically looked at Thomas and said, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas, I am the way. That's how you're going to get to the Father's house. I am the way. Perhaps we now can appreciate more deeply than ever this reflective disciple's struggle to believe at his intersection of doubt. And, and so I think it kind of leads us to be able to understand a little bit more when we go to John chapter 20 and we, and, and we find that he's really doubting here. You know, after Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, every creepy, crawly doubt imaginable was uncovered in Thomas's stone-turning mind. You know, his faith twisted in silent convulsions, touched off by the powerful uncertainties that mocked everything that he believed in. Have you ever had your beliefs just rocked to the core? Well, this is what happened to Thomas. Jesus was supposed to be the Messiah. We sang about it this morning. Jesus, Messiah. You know, but now he's dead. There is no kingdom. You know, can you imagine him thinking that? You know, he, he was fake. We, we must have been a fool to believe. So all these things are running through his mind. And for three days, all the disciples grieved. They were tormented by the doubts that possessed them. Then Jesus came back. Jesus came back. And in John chapter 20, beginning with verse 19, he says, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and he stood among them and said, peace be with you. What would you have done? Would you have said, excuse me, Lord, I got to go change my drawers. <laughs> because he's standing there. All of them are, the doors are locked. And all of a sudden, Jesus is standing in the midst of them. Jesus is right there in the midst of them. It says, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And um, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And then go down there to verse 24. It says, now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Thomas wasn't there. Do you ever wonder why Thomas wasn't there? I have. Probably because 
he had chosen to grieve alone. Reflective people oftentimes do that. You know, they prefer solitude to crowded rooms for sorting out their questions, and that's okay. That's okay. You know, wherever that that heartbroken disciple was, his companions soon found him and exclaimed to him. They they said it. Notice what it says in verse 25 there. In verse 25, when the other disciples told him that they had seen the Lord, he declared, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. I will not believe it. Thomas pessimistically replied, I will, I'm not going to believe that. You know, Thomas could, could say nothing less. You know, it would take more than words to help this reflective disciple overcome the disturbing lessons of having his master pinned to a cross with Roman spikes. He saw it for himself. You know, it would take touching the resurrected Savior's wounds to, to heal the wounds of Thomas's faith because he really struggled there. And that is exactly what Jesus allowed him to do. Notice what it says there in verses 26 through 28. A week later, his disciples were in the house together again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, notice what it says there, though the doors were locked, Jesus did it again. (laughs) The doors were locked, and he came and he stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Jesus already knew what Thomas was thinking, what Thomas was feeling. Jesus said to Thomas, he said, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put your put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said one of the greatest things ever said in all of Scripture. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Now I want to tell you something, folks. That, that is as raw an expression of sincere faith as you're ever going to see anywhere in the scripture. The, the kind of rock solid faith that only comes to those who have honestly faced their doubts. And Thomas was such a person. After, afterwards, Jesus extended a blessing upon those in the future whose doubts would be healed because they could not touch his wounds with his hands or with their hands, but they touched them with the hand of faith. Notice what it says there. Jesus said, let me look here. Jesus said to the, Jesus told them in verse 29, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's us. They're talking about us right there. We're in the scripture. How growth in your Christian walk can occur, you know, throughout any life lived honestly and reflectively, there will be moments of doubt. We're all going to face our moments of doubt. Times when we feel that we cannot cope, we don't understand, we have too many questions. You know, how do we keep growing in the midst of those difficulties? 
Yeah, and I think it's be- that we, we have to do that by, by risking failure and not always playing it safe by not placing our security in the temporal, but placing our security in the one who we need to place it in by questioning and probing the uncertain uncertainties of life, not blindly embracing our beliefs, and by admitting and struggling with our humanity, not denying our limitations and our fears. I think that's what we do. Non-reflective not reflective, but non-reflective people ask what could be worse than unanswered questions. Reflective people will answer that by saying unquestioned answers. Any question asked earnestly without a hidden agenda is not a skeptical question. It's an honest search. And may we have courage to never stop asking and searching for the honest question and the honest answers. Now, I want to conclude this morning with these, with the, with this idea. I believe that doubt is not sinful, but it can be dangerous. It can also spur us to enormous spiritual growth if we allow it. But it's what you do with the doubt that matters. It's what you do with that that matters. And so I'm going to give you seven simple suggestions on how to handle your doubt. And I'm going to go quickly here with them. The first one is this. Admit your doubt and ask for help. Because that's what the Father did in in Mark chapter 9, and that's what Thomas did in John chapter 20. He plainly stated why he could not and would not believe until he saw the evidence for himself. God is not fragile. He can handle your doubts. He can handle your fears and your worries and your unanswered questions. He is a big God. Remember that song as a kid? My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing that my God cannot do. He runs the universe without any help. Your doubts won't upset him. Tell him your doubts. Cry out and ask for his help. You don't have to fight the battle alone. Ask a Christian friend to walk with you as you face these doubts honestly. You can have someone walk with you. Number two, recognize that faith is a choice, not a feeling. It's easy to feel like you've got a lot of faith you know, when all is well, when you've got a lot of money in the bank, when your wife loves you, when the doctor says that you don't have cancer, when your children are all doing well, when your career is moving ahead, when you're happy with your church, and and all seems right in the world. It's easy to not have to worry about the doubts. But what will happen to you when you run out of money, your marriage hits a road bump, you end up with cancer, your children have problems, you lose your job, your friends at church won't talk to you, and life in general just plain stinks. If all you've got is a God of the good times, if that's all you have is a God of the good times, then your faith is going to be shallow indeed. Sometimes, You just have to choose to believe and not doubt. You just have to choose it. And sometimes we all need to learn through our fears and through our tears that our our confidence in God 
And God alone is all that really matters. That's all that matters. Third, don't be afraid to borrow some faith. Don't be afraid to borrow some faith. If borrowing someone's faith doesn't make sense to you, then you can skip this point, okay? You don't have to follow. But if it does, then keep it in mind. When you find yourself filled with doubts, go find someone filled with faith and borrow some of theirs. First of all, they're probably not going to realize that it's missing and it will work. Remember what Paul said? Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Number four, act on your faith, not on your doubts. Because that's what Moses, or that's what Noah did when he built the ark. That's what Abraham did when he left the Ur of Chaldees. That's what Abraham did when he offered Isaac. That's what Moses did when he marched through the Red Sea on dry ground. That's what David did when he faced the giant, Goliath. That's what, that's what Joshua did when he marched around Jericho. And that's what Daniel did when he was thrown in the lions did. And that's what Nehemiah did when he built the wall. Don't you think that these great heroes of faith had their doubts? Of course they did. They didn't know in advance how everything was going to turn out. But what they did was they decided to trust in God and act on their faith and not on their doubts. Do the same and your faith will continue to grow stronger. Number five, doubt your doubts, not your faith. Doubt your doubts, not your faith. This simply means that you should cast away your, that you should not cast away your faith simply because you are in the deep valley of darkness. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, all of us walk into that valley from time to time. Some of us spend a great deal of time in that valley. But when you find yourself in that valley where all is uncertain and you are tempted to give into your doubts, fears, and worries. Remember these two words. I want you to remember these two words. They are keep walking. Just keep walking. Nothing is gained by camping out in the valley of darkness. The only way out is to keep on walking. Every step forward is a way for you to doubt your doubts, not your faith. Because soon enough, the light's going to shine again. Number six, understand, and this is a really important one, understand that there are some things you will never understand on this side of heaven. There just is. You know, all of us have questions that we simply can't answer. You know, often those questions revolve around the whys of life. Why did this happen? Why did this happen to me? You know, why did it happen to my children or my wife or my husband? To all those questions of the heart, the answers may not come until we step across that threshold into Jesus' arms. You know, it is, it is faith building to say, I understand that I won't understand right now. I understand that I won't understand right now. That's just the way it is. And then number seven, keep going back to what you know to be true. Keep going back to it. After considering the sufferings of this life and the perils of tribulation, of tribulation of following Jesus Christ, here's what Paul concluded. 
He said in Romans chapter 8, verses 37 through, through 39, he says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, he says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is convinced. Some translations say that he is persuaded. For I am persuaded that none of this is going to happen. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says this. He says, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him unto that day. That's what he tells us. Some things you think, some things you hope, some things you know. In times of doubt or trouble, keep going back to what you know to be true. Cling to that. Hold on to it. Grab it like you're, you're, you're holding it like a big bear hug. Chet, Chet's one of those guys that can give you a good bear hug. You know, you just grab it like Chet would be hugging you or something like that and just don't let go of it. Know it to be true. Know it to be true. And let me share one last statement with you. Of, that's of great importance that, that Ray Pritchard, I, I found this, Ray Pritchard said this, he shared this, he says, one who has never doubted has only half believed. By that standard, I'm not ashamed to say that I have fully believed because I have fully doubted, I often have doubted, but my doubts have only made my faith stronger and the same thing can happen to you. God never, ever, ever turns an honest doubter away. He never does. Come to him with your doubts, with your hard questions, with your uncertainties, and hopefully you will discover the same thing that Thomas did when Thomas answered and said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's us. That's you and me, my Lord and my God.